0: The sermon that I may read to you this morning is from the hand of Reverend J. Bronchus from our sister churches in Cape Town and he has chosen for his reading and text Daniel chapter 3. So let us read that together now. Daniel 3, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counsellors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates. And all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe and every kind of music all the peoples, nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you on this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king." But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats and their other garments and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. After listening to the gospel message this morning, we will be singing from hymn 35, verse 1, 3 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Today we're going to look at two kings and the subjects of these kings. These two kingdoms look alike, but one is far more magnificent, real and eternal than the other. There are two kings and kingdoms. Who you worship or what you worship shows which one you belong to. The kingdom of this world portrayed in Babylon and its king or the kingdom of Of God portrayed in the three friends. We're going to look at the message this morning under the following three points. Firstly, the kingdom of this world worships man. Secondly, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven refuse to bow. And thirdly, God delivers his servants through death. So, firstly, we will consider the kingdom of this world worships man. King Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image of a god whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits or about 28 metres high and 2 metres wide of pure gold. This statue is all about King Nebuchadnezzar. Seven times in the first few verses Nebuchadnezzar's name is used. He wanted his name to be remembered and he wanted to unify the world. This image at heart was an attempt to rebuild the Babel of old to usurp God and his rule in history and to set up a kingdom of man. As Nietzsche said, If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? Just like everyone in the early church had to say Caesar is Lord, so Nebuchadnezzar wanted to say that Nebuchadnezzar is Lord. And still today they want you to bow. We all bow to something or to someone. After all, we were made for worship. Sin just causes us to worship created things instead of their creator. King Nebuchadnezzar gets all his important ruling officials together. It would have been quite a sight to be there on that plain with the massive statue in the middle and people from every nation and language, rulers and officials. The kingdom of this world can often look, at least outwardly, somewhat like the kingdom of God. They have their inclusiveness, they have their beautiful music and worship. Their worship also includes a sense of awe and transcendence. The world's kingdom also preaches inclusivity and diversity. Satan and the world know what people need and they want to fill the longings of people's hearts so that they are distracted from their heart's deepest longings. To be loved by God and live in relationship with him. And far too easily we are satisfied with the world's offerings. Not only do we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, but Satan and the world also blinds us. But that will never leave you feeling satisfied, rather broken and empty. Nebuchadnezzar commands them in verse 5, As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's funny, they're all about to fall down and worship something that they just had to set up. Yes, this idol was a crushing weight that needed to be carried around. This statue had to be carried around. It was dead in itself, lifeless. It could not speak, it could not talk or move. It was a senseless, mindless program. But it works. If these people had just stopped to think, just like robots that move when turned on so the crowd moves to worship when the music plays. This is so often how we follow culture sometimes. Without question, everyone else is doing it, so why not me, right? Those who make idols and trust idols will be like them. You become what you worship. If you are tired of carrying your god around, tired of bowing down, tired Tired of chasing the dollar because that is what you are supposed to do. Tired of keeping up with so-and-so. Tired of comparing yourself with others. Tired of not measuring up. Tired of having to bow down to the next newest trend on social media. May I suggest to you an alternative? The worship here is not mindless but asks you to be present. The music is not trying to get you into a trance so that you are filled with emotion but it is deep and rich that it might fill you with devotion. This is not a God that you have to carry, but a God that will carry you. You see, the world tries so hard to capture the power and transcendence and glory of God, but it's all empty and the word of God sees right through it. When this text would be read out loud in Aramaic, it would have caused laughter because of how silly it sounds, just like idolatry is silly with all its mindless repetition, just doing it because everyone else is doing it. This is how the Bible handles idolatry. The repetition of the text and the automatic response of the crowd is like an addiction. And like any addiction, it is enslaving and you lose a piece of yourself. But the consequences of not bowing down are a big deal. He says in verse 6, Whoever does not bow down and worship the statue will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Nebuchadnezzar even creates his own mini-hell where to send people to if they don't worship him, a burning furnace. So it's safe to say that with all these motivators, the factor of awe, the fact that everyone was doing it, and the punishment, it looks like the best option is to just do it. But Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, some might be tempted to think, let's just compromise here. Then you can stay in power and you can have influence. What will happen when we lose all the influence we ask ourselves in the state and the church? But the people that think this way don't really get God's sovereignty. God doesn't need anyone in power or influence to get his way. He needs obedience, unquestioning obedience, regardless of outcome. If King Nebuchadnezzar demands this kind of obedience, how much more the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth? What we do, our actions, betray to the world and ourselves who we are. By your fruit you shall know them, says the Lord Jesus Also notice how Nebuchadnezzar gets people to obey. Fear or reward, not out of pure love for him. This is different than Christ's call. Our king's rule is one of love. We worship because he loved us. We worship not because he says, worship me or you go to hell. No, we were already in hell. He laid down his life and went through hell to take us out of hell so that we might worship, so that we might love He does not want your forced or outward worship or worship because all the people are looking at you. He wants your heart. In our second point, we will now consider the citizens of the kingdom of heaven refuse to bow. The entire culture was doing it, so why wouldn't you? Just three people that we know of don't bow. Three people are willing to die in order not to worship him. They consider death a better option. They don't make a scene. They don't hold protest signs and chanting, we will not bow. No, they simply stand, quietly, courageously, faithfully. How did they come to this point? They had been faithful to God in thousands of little decisions that allowed them to not compromise with the big things. It's about daily searching our heart, seeking God in prayer, prioritising our life and smashing idols. And the astrologers notice. Maybe they were jealous after these guys got the promotion in the last chapter. They go up to the king and say roughly in verses 8 and 12, O king, live forever. By the way, there's only one king that lives forever. Didn't you say that when everyone hears the sound of the instruments, they must fall down and worship or die? Well, guess what? We saw three guys who paid no attention to the word of the king and did not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The only thing that they have done is not bow down. They have not mocked. It's like the excitement that you see on social media when a Christian gets called out for, what do you know, actually being a Christian and not bowing to whatever is trending at that particular moment. Anger is real. Well, Nebuchadnezzar goes into one of his famous temper tantrums and basically says to the three friends in verse 13 to 15, if you don't listen to me this time, I'm going to cast you right away into the little hell that I created. I'm going to do the worst to you. I'm going to kill you. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Do you see the pride of man, the arrogance of man? And this is where we reach the climax of the story. He has challenged God. This is as much about the challenge between these kings as about the faithful remnant. Here is the climax of faith. What will happen? What will their answer be? The answer is an astounding one and worth memorising. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve will be able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Basically, don't waste your time, we're not going to do it. God is God and he will do what he wants. Your fear-mongering will not overcome our faith in God. Perfect love casts out all fear. Or as John, the disciple who Jesus loved, says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Just four quick things to observe here before we move on. First, notice their basic courtesy and respect are undiminished, however bold their words. They address him as king in every line. They confess him as sovereign. Let's encourage each other to always spoke with boldness, but with respect. Secondly, they are completely unwilling to apologise for their stance. They don't say, sorry, but we can't do this. They're not sorry, they simply say we can't. Let's not be sorry for things we are not sorry for. Third, they do not doubt God's ability to save them, and they say so. God is not hostage to other gods or to human beings, emperors or otherwise. God can save absolutely, even against the laws of nature. And fourth, whether or not God will save them, they cannot know. And it has nothing to do with their final answer. Faithfulness is not dependent upon an escape plan. They choose faithfulness because it is the right thing to do, even if it costs them their lives. As Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Well, if Nebuchadnezzar was angry before, he is furious now. People get angry when they don't get the approval they think they deserve. It takes away their happiness because they seek approval from men. He orders the furnace heated seven times hotter and commands the strongest soldiers to bind them. He's not taking any chances with their God. He is going to show them the wrath of the king of this earth. And so we come to our third point where we will consider that God delivers his servants through death. The fire is so hot and he is in such a rush to kill them that the strongest soldiers are killed as they throw the three men in. The irony here is that those who obey the ruler of this age die and those that disobey end up living. Do you see the question is not if God can keep his people alive in this world, even when the whole world is against them, but rather can the kings of this world Can the kingdom of darkness keep its citizens alive? The whole world is looking on us as they are thrown in, wondering with anticipation what would happen. Was there a God who could save from Nebuchadnezzar? For these men did not narrowly escape death. They passed the point of no return. They were given over to the consuming flames as all Israel was given over to Babylon. They crossed the line from life to death. They were handed over to death. This is the life of the Christian. Paul says, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Or in Romans, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But what does it say right after that? And it is here, in the fire, that God was most visible. It was in Babylon that God was still working. Yes, our God is a God that delivers from death through death. We see here a sign of the defeat in death, a theme which reaches its climax in chapter 12. The most powerful man has a place in the front row and he jumps down from his throne in amazement. He is no longer so royal. He cannot control himself and he looks at his advisers and asks them, Didn't we throw three men in? And they replied, Certainly, O king. And then you can see him, pointing fearfully and in amazement. Look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Many people believe this fourth person to be the pre-incarnate Christ. If this is so, this man has no idea how close he was to the truth when he said he looks like a son of the gods. He was not a son of the gods, but he was a son of God. He says in Isaiah 43, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. The king approaches the entrance. And now it is no longer a command of rage, but a command of fear, wonder and amazement. He calls these servants of the Most High God to come out. As they come out, they come out as living witnesses of the power of God to save the dead, surrounded by the world as they want to witness this miracle. It is God and God alone who can save. That is why our Saviour is called Jesus, because he will save us from our sins. Our Lord alone can save us from the fires of hell, which we deserve, because he walked through the fires of hell And they consumed him on the cross. But through the cross there is no longer any condemnation for those who believe. In his almighty strength we are given the strength to stand. So be strong in the Lord and mighty in his power. And stand firm. He will save you not just by the skin of your teeth but whole, clean, just as these men were. Not a hair of your head will be singed even though you pass through death's door. This is what resurrection looks like, beloved. But Nebuchadnezzar's response is not one of repentance or true worship. He speaks of the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, but not of his God. Yet he is forced to praise him. The world is often impressed with the church, its power in times of weakness, its willingness to suffer, It's courage in spite of everything. But until they claim the grace of God for themselves, there is no salvation. Nebuchadnezzar then ends with giving them another promotion. Time after time they are persecuted. Time after time God exalts them. And just as the world keeps coming at God's people, so God is relentless in honouring his people through suffering. As one scholar says... The sufferings are the pruning knife he uses to produce yet more lavish fruit. Death is the way to life, the cross, the path to victory. That is a Christian's call. He knows he belongs to Jesus Christ, his King. His allegiance is absolute, his trust unwavering. Why? Because he knows his covenant God is always faithful to save from death. Indeed, To save from death, he is the only one who has conquered death and therefore he is worthy of our allegiance. Amen.